The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture this morning is Genesis chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, 
and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your younger, youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. The word of God for the people of God. Man, Kevin, when you started talking about my feet smelling, I was not sure where that was going. I was like, man, I, I don't know where this is headed. Um, so that was funny. Thank you for that. I, uh, a couple weeks ago when I was up here, I told some stories to you guys about people falling asleep in church, about babies crying in church. Since then, I've had two people ask me, hey, were you talking about me when you were talking about falling asleep in church? And three people asked, hey, was that my kid you were talking about? I was like, no, I would, it was years ago, the stories were years ago. But uh, I appreciate you guys just being sensitive to what the Spirit might want to do through stories like that. Um, you know, one of the most amazing things about the grace of God, which is what we're here to celebrate and think about and sing about and talk about this morning, one of the most amazing things about the grace of God is that it actually does change people. At least sometimes, right? Um, like many of you, I'm a very skeptical person. And one of the things I find that I'm most skeptical about is change. Like, do people actually change? A few years ago, I was doing some fundraising for a classical school I'm involved with, and I set up a meeting with a, a wealthy business person here in town. This is a person who's built a business over years and they're later on in life and been very successful. And I hadn't met him before, but we had some mutual acquaintances. And so someone connected us. And anyways, he invited me to come and sit down 
at his office and make a pitch for some funding. And so as we sat down, he said, okay, so you're a pastor. And I said, yeah. He said, you know, I got a lot of respect for what you do, but let me tell you something I've learned. People are who they are. It must be hard to do what you do. Because I bet you can preach to them all you want. But at the end of the day, people really don't change. We talked about a lot of other things in that meeting. And I went away from that meeting. And I, that's just the, the line that kept ringing in my head. People are who they are. And I think the reason it stuck with me so much is because it was really voicing my inner skepticism. Like, that's really what I wonder. Maybe, maybe people are who they are. Do people really change? And as I was pondering that thought, I started thinking about some of the stories I know. Some of the people even in this room this morning who are totally different human beings because they have encountered the grace of God in Jesus Christ and it has changed them. Despite my skepticism and my cynicism, the grace of God really does change people. And that's one of the themes, one of the undercurrents in the life of Joseph. We've been working our way through the life of Joseph, Genesis 37 through 50. And one of the sub-themes in this story is change, right? We've met these brothers, and early on, the story began with them selling Joseph into slavery. Now, in chapter 44, it's 20 years later, they're standing before Joseph. They don't realize it is Joseph. He knows who they are, but they don't yet know who he is. And the question is, have they changed? Joseph needs to know the answer to that question in order to, in order to know if he can trust them. We need to know the answer to that question in order for the story to have a happy ending. And also, in order for us to know, is change possible not just for them, but for us? Have Joseph's brothers changed? Is change even possible? How would we know? How would we know if these people have actually changed? Well, we'd know it by their actions, wouldn't we? I mean, you've been around long enough to know that talk is cheap. People can talk about changing all day, but when you're with someone and skeptical of whether they've changed, what you're going to look for is, can you see it in their actions? Do they act differently, carry themselves differently, respond differently? As our Lord Jesus Christ said, a good tree bears good fruit. You'll know them by their fruits, right? So we're going to want to see action. That's how we're going to know, have these brothers changed. And in fact, right here in Genesis 44, we see three signs, three evidences of change. That's what Joseph is hoping for. That's what we as the readers of the story are hoping for. And we see here three marks, three signs, three evidences that by God's grace, these brothers have in fact changed. The three marks we see are solidarity, sympathy, and substitution. Solidarity, sympathy, substitution. Let's look at the text together 
and take a look at these three evidences that something has happened in these men. Genesis chapter 44, let's look at it together, page 35, if you're using one of the Bibles underneath your seat. Joseph is going to set up a test. Joseph four, or sorry, Genesis 44, Joseph 44, verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So you can see Joseph's going to set up another test here. He's singling out Benjamin, the youngest brother. He's planting his own silver cup in the mouth of Benjamin's sack. He's going to hypothetically catch Benjamin in the act of stealing. And the question is going to be, how are the brothers going to respond? Verse 3, as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is, this, is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And by this that he practices divination. You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. To this point in the story, we've seen competition among these brothers. We've seen jealousy among these brothers. We've seen enmity among these brothers. We've seen one-upsmanship. We've seen rivalry. But now, we see something different. We see solidarity. Notice, they tear their clothes together. They return to the city together. There's a sense of unity rather than division. Notice verse 16, Judas speaks up and notice what he says. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. The word we is there five times. These brothers are unified. There's a sense of solidarity with one another. They're not hanging Benjamin out to dry. They all are going to go in together on their fate. The first sign of change we see in these brothers is a sense of solidarity, a concern for the whole rather than every man for himself. So what about you? Do you have a sense of solidarity? with God's covenant people. At this point in redemptive history, the covenant people is one family. It's these 12 brothers and their families. We see a sense of deep solidarity there. In our day, where we stand in redemptive history, God's covenant people is the church. This church and the church. Do you sense a healthy sense of solidarity with the people of God. 
That's one of the marks, one of the evidences of God's grace at work in your life is you begin to feel a sense of responsibility for the whole, not just for you. Listen, we are Americans, and what that means is every one of us has been deeply shaped by individualism and by consumerism. Even if we are aware of those influences and trying our best to resist them, it's just the water we swim in. We live in a culture that's highly individualistic and highly consumeristic. And so what that means is we tend to approach the church as a vendor of religious goods and services, right? The way we approach everything else, hey, here's what I need. How can you give that to me? What's in this for me? How can this benefit my own personal journey and my needs for fulfillment and for whatever I want to pursue in life? We tend to approach God's people that way. But what God wants is to change us from individualism to solidarity, from a lone ranger kind of me and Jesus Christianity to, to one that cares about the whole, that has a healthy sense of responsibility for the church that we're a part of and for the church at large. Listen, I hope you realize this. I think you do realize this. But sometimes I ask people this question, hey, if you're doing really well spiritually, and the person sitting next to you is not doing so well spiritually, then are you really doing well? Like, isn't it true that actually the people around you matter to your own well-being? To the extent that the church is thriving, you will thrive. And to the extent that the people around you are not thriving, you will not thrive. Isn't it true that the fate of the church, how God's people are doing, matters for how you're doing? One of the things God wants to bring about in all of us is a shift from individualism to solidarity. And here's one of the things that I look for. One of the signs that I know that shift is taking place in someone in our culture, in our day and age, is when the language shifts from you guys to we. You know when this has happened for you, right? Like when people are new to a church or to a community, their questions are all you guys' questions. Hey, how do you guys do kids ministry here? How do you guys do student ministry here? Why do you guys do this liturgy thing in your worship here? Um, how do I get connected with you guys? Right? It's all second person pronouns. Because I'm a consumer and I'm trying to figure out what do you, what do you have for me? But what tends to happen as people identify and find themselves in solidarity with a community of people is the language shifts to we, right? Hey, what are we doing for Easter? Hey, how's our children's ministry doing? Hey, how's our gospel community thriving. The language begins to take on first person plural pronouns because I'm identifying, I care about the thing that I'm a part of. I care about the we, not just the me. So the first sign of change we see here in the brothers is solidarity. Something has changed in them where instead of sort of dividing from one another, every man for themselves, there's a sense of unity and togetherness. Second sign we see of change is sympathy. Now, starting here in verse 18 of chapter 44, Judah steps forward and makes the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis. And by the way, when you're reading biblical narrative, direct discourse is a sign of emphasis. So by giving him the longest speech in the entire book, the narrator is foregrounding Judah as a critical character to the whole story. And Judah says a lot in this speech, 
But there's one thing in particular that's very notable. Let's pick it up in verse 25. Judah says, when, we, when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. He's just reporting to his dad what Joseph had said. Verse 27, then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. How many sons does Jacob have? Twelve, right? The eleven brothers standing before Joseph are all sons of Jacob. And yet as Judah reports what his father says, he doesn't edit it to be factually correct. He reports that what his dad said was, you know my wife bore me two sons. In other words, Judah and the rest of the brothers seem to have made peace with the fact that their father has a particular attachment to Rachel and to Rachel's two sons. Now listen, Joseph's favoritism, or Jacob's favoritism, excuse me, is wrong. We've acknowledged that clearly, that this is part of the dysfunction that's created all the chaos in this family. And yet it seems that these brothers, in, as they've grown in grace, have made peace with the flaws and failings of their father. They have sympathy toward him without excusing his sin. They have a sense of sympathy and understanding for the kind of flawed person he is. Isn't it true in your life that you always see the flaws of other people more clearly than you see your own? I mean, like if there's some area of your life where you know that you're not as mature or sanctified or, um, you know, far along as you need to be, you got a lot of grace for yourself in that. You're like, you know what? I'm just on a journey. I'm growing. I'm a lot further along than I was five years ago, right? But some, the same area in somebody else's life, you're like, you really need to get it together. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what's taking you so long. I don't even know if you're a Christian, right? Like we just tend to be a lot harder on other people than we are on ourselves. We have a high regard or a high sense of tolerance for our own flaws and failures, but a low sense of tolerance for the flaws and failures and weaknesses of other people. And a sign that you're growing in grace is sympathy for the weaknesses of others, the flaws of others. This is what the New Testament has in mind when it talks about bearing with one another in love. It's the idea of putting up with the flaws, the failures, the weaknesses of other human beings. Being able to bear with one another in love, extending sympathy to one another in light of who we are and all the ways that we're broken by sin and by selfishness and just by our own weakness and folly. This past week on Tuesday, a couple that was formerly part of my gospel community, they multiplied out to another gospel community, uh, they had a baby. And so the hospital called the church and said, hey, this couple had a baby. They said they're part of your church. And uh, so I texted my friend. I was like, hey, I heard you guys had the baby. How's everything looking? He said, everything's good. And I said, can I, can I drop by the hospital later this afternoon and just make a visit? And he said, yeah, that'd be great. Here's the hospital. Here's the room number. And I said, all right, I'll drop by later this afternoon. Guys, a lot of things happened between then and later this afternoon. 
Some stuff came up. I got really distracted with some projects we were working on, some things I really needed to give energy and attention to. Went home. Didn't go to the hospital. That was Wednesday. Also Thursday went by. Also Friday went by. I'm at the store Friday night. This guy texts me. He's like, hey, just wanted you to know we're at home now. And as soon as I got that text message, I was like, man, I'm an utter failure of a human being and a pastor and a friend. Like I've just failed in every category. And I was standing there in the store like, what do you, what do, you do in this moment? Like I just told, like not only did I like fail to show up, I didn't text, I didn't call. Just like, it's like I fell off the face of the earth. So I, I texted back. I was like, hey, will you forgive me? I totally, obviously just dropped the ball here. And graciously, because he's that kind of a person. He's like, no big deal. But the reason he had sympathy for me, I suspect, is because he's a Christian. And he knows that he's, in similar ways, forgotten things and failed to follow through on things, right? When, when we have sympathy for other people, it's a sign that we understand our own frailty and our own need. And by contrast, when we're self-righteous, when we fail to have sympathy for the failings of others, usually the root is because we don't really understand our own failings as deeply as we need to, right? So man, when something like that happens to me, um, I have a lot more sympathy for other people's failings too. Like, oh man, all the times somebody was supposed to show up and didn't, somebody was supposed to follow through and didn't, just reminds me, oh yeah, I do that too. It's a lot easier to extend sympathy to others. We all need that kind of grace, don't we? And that's what you see here in the story. Without minimizing the effects of Jacob's favoritism, without pretending it hasn't sown seeds of discord in the family, what we see is these brothers in a real way expressing sympathy toward their father's weakness. Solidarity. Sympathy. We come finally now to the most powerful moment in chapter 44. Joseph is testing the brothers. He's put this silver cup in the mouth of Benjamin's sack. Benjamin's been found with it. The punishment is that Benjamin is going to have to remain as a slave in Egypt while the others go free. And the question is, how will the brothers respond? Will they leave Benjamin behind and rejoice in their own freedom? Let's pick up Judah's speech in verse 30 of chapter 44. Judah says to Joseph, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy, Benjamin, is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. Judah the very same brother who sold Joseph into slavery 20 years ago is now substituting himself to free Benjamin from slavery. 
That's a pretty dramatic change, isn't it? Bruce Waltke, one of the great commentators on the book of Genesis, observes this. Judah is the first person in Scripture who willingly offers his own life for another. His self-sacrificing love for his brother for the sake of his father prefigures the vicarious atonement of Christ who by his voluntary sufferings heals the breach between God and human beings. How do we know these brothers have changed? Well, we know it by what we see in their actions here in chapter 44. We know it by their solidarity. We know it by their sympathy. And we know it by Judah's substitution in place of Benjamin. Now, here's what I want you to remember. The characters in this story are real people and ordinary people like you and me. Sometimes we read the Bible and are prone to like think of Bible people as like superheroes or super Christians or really amazing people who must have had a lot more faith than us because that's how they got in the Bible. No, nah, they're just ordinary people. And if the grace of God can change them, that should give you a ton of hope because it means the grace of God can change you and me as well. Like the same God who brought about this massive change in these brothers can bring about massive change in our lives as well. So the question I want to close with is how? How can we experience this same kind of change? How can we become selfless like these brothers have become selfless? How can this kind of change happen in my life and in your life? What I want you to see is that it happens when we see what God is doing through Judah. That's the key to this story. Change for us happens when we see and begin to realize what God is doing through Judah. See, as a careful reader of the story, the question you should be asking here in chapter 44 is, why does Judah suddenly come to the forefront? Why does Judah give the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis? Why is the family referred to in verse 14 of this chapter as Judah and his brothers? Foregrounding Judah as the main character in the narrative. Well, you see, it all has to do with what God is doing through Judah. Here's what God is doing. God is saving his people through a substitute. God is saving his people through a substitute. That's what God's up to in this story. And of course, this moment is only a foretaste of an even greater and more important moment when God will save his people through a substitute. As we mentioned, one of the ways we learn to read the Bible is to trace the narrative of redemptive history. Here in Genesis 44, God's people, the people he's promised his faithfulness and love to, are the descendants of Abraham. At this time, this is only a few dozen people. It's these 12 brothers and their families. As we carry that trajectory all the way through Scripture, as we talked about a few weeks ago, it narrows down to one, Jesus, who is the heir of all the promises God makes to this people. 
And then it opens up to all the peoples of the world in and through Jesus. God will save his people through a substitute. He does that here in a small micro way with Judah. He's going to do it in a much bigger and impactful way in and through the life and death of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Follow this with me. Jesus entered into solidarity with us, did he not? We just professed in the Nicene Creed. Our belief in the incarnation that Jesus took on flesh was born of the Virgin Mary. That he became one of us. He entered into solidarity with us as humans. He didn't just appear human. He didn't just pretend to be human. He wasn't like some superhero who hovered above humanity and kind of walked around, but wasn't really like you. He really took on human flesh. The incarnation is Jesus entering into solidarity with us. He fully identified with us in our humanity. And so Dane Ortland observes this. It is not only that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles like a doctor prescribing medicine. It is also that he is with us in our troubles like a doctor who has endured the same disease. That's the key. Jesus has entered into solidarity with us like a doctor who has endured the same disease. Ortland has this great phrase. He talks about the unrestrained withness of Jesus. Jesus is with us. He has become one of us. He has entered into our humanity and taken it upon himself in the incarnation. Jesus has entered into solidarity with us. Not only that, but Jesus sympathizes with us. You may remember that famous verse in the book of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice that this verse reminds us Jesus was without sin, but also reminds us that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. A word that means limitations, inabilities, incapacities. Jesus does not hover above your weaknesses. He sympathizes with you. The great Puritan John Owen says this in his commentary on Hebrews. Christ is inclined from his own heart and affections to give us help and relief. He is inwardly moved during our sufferings and trials with a sense and fellow feeling of them. I love that language of fellow feeling. Jesus sympathizes with us. He has a fellow feeling with his people. In his incarnation, Jesus enters into solidarity with us, takes on our humanity. In his love, Jesus sympathizes with us. And on the cross, Jesus substitutes himself for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. As we've said, as we've preached on this text in the past, 
This is one of the earliest summaries of the gospel message known to exist in history. First Corinthians is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. And most people say that this little encapsulation of the gospel in chapter 15 is what the earliest Christians would have understood. This is the heart of the gospel. So when you ask, why did Jesus Christ die on the cross? Here's the answer in five words. Christ died for our sins. Salvation by substitution. Jesus taking our place, standing in for us, dying for our sin. In Genesis 44, Benjamin will only be saved. He's only going to go free if Judas substitutes himself. If Judas steps in and takes the place of Benjamin. Well, friends, can't you see in the greater story of the gospel, you are Benjamin. You are the one condemned to slavery and death. And your older brother Jesus steps in and substitutes himself for you, gives himself up so that you might go free, so that you might be liberated. You are saved because another has taken your place. And I don't know if you noticed this in Genesis 44, but you might notice Benjamin says no words. He says nothing. Judah does all the talking. Judah is the advocate. Judah is the intercessor. Judah is the mediator. Judah is the one acting and moving and working on Benjamin's behalf so that he might go free. Friends, that's the gospel. God is saving his people through a substitute. Jesus enters into solidarity with us. Jesus sympathizes with us. Jesus substitutes himself for us on the cross. And then as we will celebrate next week, Jesus rises from the dead in victory and in power over sin and selfishness and death and darkness. And listen, I don't want to get ahead in the story of Joseph because I don't want to give away the sermon for two weeks from now. But even the resurrection is foreshadowed in the story of Joseph, isn't it? Because what you're about to see in the next chapter is a brother who everyone thought was dead turns out to be alive. And not only is he alive, he has the power to usher God's people into a new kingdom. He has the authority to change their future, to create a whole new opportunity for Jacob and his descendants. And likewise, because Jesus has risen from the dead, there's a whole new kingdom open to you. There's a whole new future possible for you. You're invited into a whole new way of being, or to say it the way we said at the beginning of the sermon, all of this means because Jesus has risen from the dead, you can actually change. There really is new life, new hope, new hope, and a new future possible for you. So what is God doing in Genesis 44? Well, he is saving his people through a substitute. That's what he's doing. And when you see that, and when you allow God to save you by accepting Jesus as your substitute, it changes you. The thing that really changes you most deeply is seeing what God is doing in Christ and allowing it to be true for you. Allowing Jesus to be your substitute. Seeing what God is doing in Jesus, seeing that God is saving his people through a substitute, it changes you. 
I mean, think about those three themes we've talked about for the whole sermon. When you see the solidarity of Jesus with his people, it humbles you out of your individualism, doesn't it? Like when you realize it's not just Jesus died for me, but that Jesus has identified with his people. There's not a single Christian who belongs to Jesus anywhere that is not in solidarity with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we see that, it gives me a bigger vision of that people, doesn't it? Like you begin to love that people, not because they're lovable, but because Jesus loves them. Because Jesus is entered into solidarity with them. Like if you all belong to Jesus, then how, how can I not care what happens to you? How can I not care what you're doing and how you're thriving and what it means for you to be the people Jesus wants you to be? When you see the solidarity of Jesus with his people, it humbles you out of your individuals. And this can't be just about you. No way you could be a lone ranger Christian if you understand the solidarity of the Lord Jesus Christ with his people. Likewise, when you see the sympathy Jesus has for sinners, for flawed, foolish humans, when you realize his tenderness with people who don't have their act together, it causes you to love people in spite of their flaws, doesn't it? Because your flaws didn't keep Jesus from loving you and, die, and dying for you, so they shouldn't keep me from loving you. Like all those things about you that I think should be better, you should be further on down the road, all the things about you that I just wish you would get sorted out so you weren't such a difficult person to relate to, all of that, Jesus loves you anyway. Jesus sympathizes with your weakness. And all the things about me that you're like, why aren't you further down the road? Jesus sympathizes with that weakness. And so when I see Jesus' sympathy for his people, it makes me want to move toward them in love and openness and generosity, right? And when you see that Jesus substituted himself for you on the cross, doesn't that make you want to sacrifice for the good of others? Like, isn't it true that as you see and realize that Jesus stood in your place, that like Judah for Benjamin, Jesus is stepping in, taking what you are facing? Well, that makes you want to sacrifice in a similar way for the good of other people. You start to enjoy being humbled so that others can be exalted. You start to enjoy serving behind the scenes so that others can get credit. You start to enjoy taking the low place so that others can be lifted up. Why? Because it's very Christ-like. Because you know that that's what the Savior did for you. So it just naturally becomes something you want to do for others. When you really see what God is doing in Jesus, it changes you. This is how people really change. Change is really possible. We see it in these brothers. I hope you haven't forgot the sermon we preached on Judah last time. Real different Judah six weeks ago versus the Judah that we meet now. God in his grace has changed these brothers. God in his grace can change you. And it happens when you see what God is doing in Judah and in Jesus. So listen, friends, the, the message of Genesis 44 is not try harder to be more like Judah. The message is Open your eyes to what God is doing, saving his people through a substitute. See the one who, like Judah, gave himself for you on the cross. And when you see that, 
You can't help but be changed. Let's pray that God would give us eyes to see Jesus together. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you that you are saving your people through a substitute. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have entered into solidarity with us, taking on human flesh, being born in our likeness with our nature. Thank you that you sympathize with our weaknesses. You know our frame. You are mindful that we are dust. You see our weaknesses and limitations, and you love us anyway. Thank you, Jesus, that you substituted yourself on the cross, stood in our place, took what we deserve to set us free. We ask two things this morning. One, that this news would break in with all the beauty and joy that it's intended to into the hearts and lives of those who have not yet trusted in you. So would you let this morning be the day that some in this room come to embrace your substitution for them. And second, God, for all of us who have embraced that, would you give us a newfound joy, appreciation, satisfaction, and worship as we remember the story of Judah and Benjamin, and as we see how it points us to the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we get ready to enter Holy Week, would you stir in us a deep joy and a deep thankfulness and gratitude for all that you have done for us in Jesus. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.